0: There's a special presence of the Lord when God's people are assembled together. And not only is Jesus here, the angels of God are here. You can't see him, but the audience is much larger here than you realize.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie, senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a look at the Church at Philadelphia one of seven churches listed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which Jesus addresses. We saw yesterday that the Church of Philadelphia, despite being born in a time when the culture worshipped many pagan gods, a time when human intellect was prized over belief in the one true God, that this church truly honored God. As Pastor Berge begins reading from chapter 3, verse 7, we see the attributes of God which this church honored and obeyed.
0: And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? He who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now remember, in each of the seven letters, we dipped back into chapter one. We saw that description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took descriptions of himself and he applied them accordingly to the need. Either negative or positive, is it related to a specific church? And some of you took my challenge in the early weeks and you went back and you tried to match up where does it come from in Revelation 1, what church does he apply it to? And those of you who did that discovered that there was one church, namely this church, the church in Philadelphia, who did not have a commendation that came out of the first chapter. He gives them a special commendation that's not found in chapter 1, and rightly so, because this church is so unique. And so Jesus describes himself as the one who is holy and true, or more literally... He who is the holy and the true. The article is found both before the word holy and before the word true and original. It doesn't read real smooth in English when you do that, but it's important. When God, by the Spirit of God, inspires a word, he inspires it for a purpose. He is described as the holy and the true. Now, I underscore this because one of the great titles for God throughout all the Old Testament of the Father is he is the holy one. You might want to circle out in the margin of your bible if it's there isaiah 40 verse 25 or just write it to whom then will you liken me that i would be his equal says the holy one when god asks that question he is saying there's absolutely no one that you can even begin to compare me to i have no equal says the holy one now that's the title For God Almighty, and yet it is a title that the Lord Jesus ascribes to Himself here in this, this letter to this church. He is not simply, though, holy and true. He is the Holy and the True One. He is like the Father, and if there's anything that will capture you when you step into glory, it will be the absolute holiness of God. Jesus, in Hebrews 7, is described as a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's without blemish. He's absolutely perfect. So when the Bible says Christ died for sins, 1 Peter 3, and he was sinless, then the only way to understand his death is substitutionary in nature. He had no sin. He was dying for nothing he had done. He was dying for us. And so Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter has already said in 1 Peter 2.22 that Christ committed no sin. And so Scripture paints him as sinless. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, He knew no sin. 1 John says, In him there is No sin. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You say, how do we know? Because in the Old Testament, the prophets wrote that when God would become a man, you would know it was really, truly God in a human body, because not only would he die, be pierced through for our iniquity, not only would he be buried... And there's typology and specific prophecies that relate to all of these. But on the third day, He would be raised from the dead. And so Romans 1.4 calls the resurrection a declaration. It calls it an announcement. God announces that Jesus is God in human flesh by the resurrection. He's the first one to be resurrected from the dead. Not the first to be raised to life. Seven people are raised to life in the Bible, only to die again. Jesus is the first ever to be resurrected to life in a forever body, demonstrating His sinlessness. And so the Scripture says, death is no longer master over Him. And so if I asked you the question this morning, do you believe Jesus is sinless? What I'm really asking you is, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But please notice beyond the righteousness of our king, there is the rightness of this king. Not only is he the holy one, he is the true one. He is saying in this verse, I am the holy one and I am the true one. Now the Greek word here for truth carries the, connota- the connotation of being genuine, of being authentic, of being the opposite of fake. He is the true one, which means because he is true, because he is absolutely right in everything that he is, he's worthy of our trust this morning. Now, Jesus said, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If we will lift up the Lord Jesus, the one who is the holy one and the true one, when men begin to see Jesus for who he is, God will use our declaration, our proclamation to bring them to Himself. He is the Holy One. He is the True One. And so the Bible teaches that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. That's why we just baptize these five people not in the names, but in the name singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Or you could say, Jehovah the Father, Jehovah the Son, or Jehovah the Spirit, or more specifically and probably more accurately, you could say Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son. And for those who are with me in the course on pneumatology, we saw Yahweh the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God is also called Yahweh the Lord. So there are many ways all the way through the Scripture to demonstrate the deity of Christ. But I'll tell you, as you read through the Revelation by implication, by direct statement all the way through from the first chapter to the last chapter, you will find more affirmations for the deity of Jesus Christ in this book than in any other. That's why people love to attack Revelation and they say that John was just an old senile man who is confused and all balled up. So when we think about the church and her master, we must first learn of his attributes. Secondly, we must also marvel at his authority. He has authority. And you see that authority expressed here in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shots and no one opens. Now, what precisely does that mean? Now, remember, we've already noted there are hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament woven all the way through the Revelation. You might want to put out in the margin... Or you can, it's in the New American Standard footnotes, just circle, if you have the NASB with footnotes, circle Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. Isaiah 22, 22 That's where this particular allusion comes from. One of the challenges for a lot of Christians in the 21st century, especially in a day of virtual total biblical illiteracy due to the seeker movement and its effects on evangelicalism, is people no longer know their Bibles. And if there's one part of the Bible they certainly don't know, it's the Old Testament. Or maybe the Psalms and Proverbs will be marked up a little bit, but for the most part, the Old Testament is the clean section of their Bible. And yet of the 404 verses found in the Revelation, there's 300 specific allusions to the Old Testament. You'll hear some say 6, 7, 800, and you can find the same allusion in different books and double count them, but there's 300 allusions. That's 75% of the book of Revelation is embedded and woven through the Old Testament. And never once in the Revelation does he say, well, David said, or Isaiah the prophet said. It's just said... And you have to search it on your own. And so this is a very important phrase that Jesus is using, and it's rooted from Isaiah chapter 22. Now, I'll let you go home and read that chapter of Scripture this afternoon, but let me just briefly relate it. There's a man by the name of Eliakim who is given the key to the house of David, or another way of saying that in some translations say the key to his treasury. It's kind of interpretive, but that's the thought. He's given the key to the house of David. Now, in Isaiah chapter 22, there's an official by the name of Shibna. And Shibna is basically the administrator. He is the uh, chief of staff under David's kingdom. But he's not a faithful steward. In fact, he turns out to be a scam artist. And so the Lord pronounces judgment on this man Shebna, and God raises up a man by the name of Eliakim to take his place. And he says there, I will set the key of the house of David on his, Eliakim's, shoulder. That meant that Eliakim had the checkbook to the kingdom. He is the one who would open the door for people to be given funds from David's treasury, and he is the one that would shut the door. Now, no doubt, Jesus quotes this Old Testament passage and applies it to himself because he wants the church in Philadelphia to understand that he has all of the resources available to them in his hands. And so as the Lord God, as Yahweh, has the keys to the treasurer's house, he is able this morning to supply all of your needs according to his riches. Now, I remember reading some years ago of a missionary who in the early part of the 20th century, was going overseas, actually, to India. India has mentioned the Bible, you know that. Some of my Indian friends remind me of that, you know. He was going to India, and as he boarded the gangplank to go overseas, a close friend of his handed him a sealed envelope. It was a thick envelope. And he said, now, I want to give you this, and I want you to open this envelope. If all of your resources have been exhausted... You've tried every possible way in which to meet those needs, and if no one else can meet that need and you see no other way, then open the envelope. That missionary graciously took it, thanked him. 22 years later, he came back, and he handed his friend who is still alive the sealed envelope. He said, never, ever did I come to the place in my life where God did not meet the needs. Listen, I am so grateful that the Lord Jesus has the keys. And I believe that the Lord Jesus wants us to know that if we are good stewards, both personally and corporately, that we will never lack his resources. You know, when a church says, if we only had such and such, or if if we only had such and such a building, or if we only had so and so much money, we could do this or that. Because we don't, we can't do it. That's an insult to God Almighty. If you know the one who has the keys to the Father's storehouse, then God will meet our needs. Now, if we're poor stewards, many times God doesn't entrust more to us than He is able to give to us. But if you are a good steward and you are looking in faith, As King David said in Psalm 37, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. And as Paul said, I already quoted, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So please know that when the cause is righteous because he is holy, when the cause is right because he is true, then you can know that you will be taken care of. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, he was holy, who is true, who has the key of David. Who has the key of David. That's an important phrase. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, if you know the prophet Isaiah, then you know that one of the things that Isaiah the prophet does is he underscores the truth that Messiah will come from the household of David. Mary was told that at the very birth of Jesus. When she was pregnant, she said, your son someday will sit on the throne of David. He's yet to do that, but he's going to, just as God promised. And so the key of David comes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually God narrows the scope and he brings the Messiah through this Davidic covenant. He was holy and true who has the key of David. Jesus is not saying here that he has the key of David and he simply has the ability to open and close the door. Jesus is saying far more than that. He is saying, I do open the door, and sometimes I do close the door. And because he is holy and true, you can know that he will never, ever, ever make a mistake. He will never use the key for a false cause, and he will never give the key to someone who is propagating an untruth. He uses the key in a way that is holy, and he uses the key in a way that is true. In fact, the key is expanded. We've already studied one dimension of the keys that he holds. Remember in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, and this is important if we're thinking about the resources of God, there he said, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So the promise that he gives here in Revelation 3 and verse uh, 7 is in reference to save people. So it's important that you are saved, that you are born again, because the one who holds the key to the treasury of God is also the one who holds the key to heaven and hell. He can unlock heaven and he can lock hell and he can lock hell and unlock heaven because he is absolutely authoritative. In addition to his attributes that we must learn, his authority that we should marvel over, also think about we must yield to his appraisal. What matters is his appraisal. Not yours, not mine, but his and so the omniscient Christ begins verse 8 with these words, I know your deeds. Some of your translations say, I know your works. Same thing. He knows everything that we are doing, how we are doing it, and what our mouths and motives are saying when we do it. He looks at every action and every word. He knows he knows everything. And some of us, we might even worship a little bit differently on a Sunday if we thought of the reality that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. That we are laid naked and bare before Him before whom we have to do. We saw in Revelation 1 that He walks amongst the lampstands and He defined the lampstands for us as the churches. The Lord Jesus is present here this morning in a way that He is different Present in other places. There's a special presence of the Lord when God's people are assembled together. And not only is Jesus here, the angels of God are here. You can't see him, but the audience is much larger here than you realize. And if we thought for a moment that the Lord Jesus is watching us, even the way we worship, even our service would be different. And so the eyes of the Lord are in every place. God is watching these people. I know your deeds. He sees everything we do. He sees why we do what we do, and it's important to him. Now, beyond the church and her master, let's think for a moment as we consider the kind of church God can use, the church and her ministry, the church and her ministry, and by extension, our ministry, because again, he's not just speaking to the church at Philadelphia, but the churches, that means us. And so he unfolds three truths to this church. First, their ministry involved opportunities. It involved opportunities. That's clear here in verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, the image of open and closed doors is found elsewhere in the New Testament You see it often, for instance, in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember that occasion? On his second missionary journey, Paul leaves Antioch of Syria and he makes his way across what today we call the continent of Asia. And he's uh, bound and determined to have ministry there. And he goes north and God's Spirit shuts the door. He goes south and God shuts the door. And all these shut doors all the way. And he comes all the way to the end of the continent of Asia. And he has a vision from a man over in Macedonia while he's asleep at night. And and, and the man says, please come, come over and help us. And Paul begins to see that God closed these other doors and he opened this door and so Paul goes over to the city called Philippi, preaches the gospel and for the first time in the history of humanity, people in Western Europe hear the gospel. And it becomes very strategic because for the next thousand years, Western Europe becomes the center of Christianity and the launching pad to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. Now we want to be a local church, I hope you do, that looks for open doors and when God opens those doors, we walk through those doors. Because when God opens the door, the devil can't shut it. Now understand though that when God opens a door he doesn't do it just accidentally say ah, i feel like he does it based on certain preconditions that's what this verse says look at it again i know your deeds behold i have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name now some english translations break the one continuous thought into two thoughts in order to make it a little bit more readable And that's unfortunate because it's actually one continuous thought in the original. In other words, there's a cause effect here that at work. And so the church at Philadelphia had an open door from Jesus Christ because they had fulfilled certain preconditions. The open door and their deeds, which Jesus just said he knew, are inseparably linked together. And so we are told that they had a little power, Because the little power is connected to to three things. They kept his word. They had not denied his name. And the text equally uh, says that they were not ashamed of him. So follow it. Let me give it in reverse order. Number one, they were dedicated to the word of God. That's one reason God gave them an open door. They were dedicated to the word of God. Number two, they were dedicated to the son of God. And number three, they were empowered by the spirit of God. And because of those three truths that were true of this church corporately, which meant it was true of most of the people individually, Jesus gave them this open door. Now, let's think our way through that for a moment. He said, you've kept my word. They're dedicated to the word of God. The Bible was their authority. The Bible was their guide. And we have seen That it is the word of God that brings about not only the new birth, but spiritual growth. And so if you're looking for a church for short sermons, you're in the wrong place. We're here worshiping God in truth. We're here to learn the Bible because it is life-changing. And it will prepare you not only for eternity, but to live a godly life now. Number two, they had not denied my name. That is to say, they weren't ashamed of Jesus, and I hope you're not. We're not ashamed of Jesus. We're not ashamed that we are an evangelistic church, that we are wanting to bring men and women and boys and girls to faith in Jesus Christ because without Him, it is a Christless eternity that is never ending. And number three, they were activated by the Spirit of God. These were people who had the Spirit of God released in their life, there was power. In fact, notice in verse 8, Jesus says you have a little power. Do you see that? You should underline that. They have a little power. You say, that sounds like a put-down. It's not. The word power is the word dunamis. We get our English word dynamite. It's describing God's spiritual dynamic. And God did what he did for this church, not because of their great programs. He did what he did in, tr- in the church of Philadelphia, not because they were so smart, not because of their great financial resources, not because of their great numbers. Those things don't impress God. He did what he did because they were available to him. They were available to the Spirit of God, wanting to, to wear him like a suit of clothes. And you've heard me say it many times that God is not looking for people of great ability, but great availability. And so the Philadelphia church had a little power because they had discovered to some degree the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit is infinite as the Father is and as the Son. And uh, if He gave us too much power, we'd probably pop. But listen, little is much when you're talking about God at work in a life. So they had a little power, Because they had kept his word, because they had not denied his name. And so there's this cause-effect relationship. Now, there's the church and her opportunities, but also think with me, the ministry that involved opposition. They had not only opportunity, a ministry of opportunity, but they had a ministry of opposition. We read now in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, But lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, sometimes when God opens a door of opportunity, it will swing on a door of adversity. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, for a wide door, for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries." We studied in the book of Daniel that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. But with that power, and with that open door, and with that action, often comes opposition. And listen, there's no lazy way, there's no cheap way to serve God. Some Christians are not being used of God because they're lazy. I mean, I'm not being unkind. I'm just being truthful. There's no cheap way, no easy way, no lazy way to serve God. And sometimes when you serve the living God, with it comes opposition. And so this church was no exception. This is probably the greatest of all seven. And yet he says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say, here's a testimony they give, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Now, not everyone was obviously happy with the church in Philadelphia. He speaks here of a group of people that he designates as being a part of the synagogue of Satan. And let me say parenthetically that the true church will often be targeted by people who are unbelievers. And God wants to put some steel in the hearts of these people in Philadelphia and us as well. And as we move to the end of the age and things get more and more wicked and you become more and more distinctly different, then that opposition is going only to increase. When I was a new Christian, I would say, I think it was safe to say that at least the majority, over 50%, that over 50% of the churches in America were good churches. They had the gospel. No more. Now gospel preaching churches have become a minority. And if you're listening to me somewhere in the world today and you are in a good church, And people are making fun of you. Don't worry, you are in good company. Now, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And some of you are moving this summer. Some of you are going to another city and you're going to be looking for a good church. And don't always go by what people say. Sometimes the church that they ridicule and speak negatively of is actually the best church in the city that you want to attend. I've learned over the years, people either love us or they absolutely hate us, but there's very little middle ground when it comes to community Bible church. And that was true of the church here in this city called Philadelphia. So sometimes a good thing to do is just to listen to what people say. Now, I'm not talking about obnoxious people. I'm not talking about, you know, a Westboro Baptist type of church that is just absolutely disgusting and obnoxious, and they are ridiculed, not because they're godly, but because they're godless. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who is living and loving
1: the Lord. The true church will oftentimes be targeted by unbelievers. But one of the characteristics of true believers is that they will persevere and they will stand firm in their beliefs. That was true of the church at Philadelphia, and it's true of the modern-day church. To listen again to today's study in Revelation 3, verse 7 to 13, and the message, A Church God Can Use... Visit searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. If you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV9. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Christ and to then grow believers in their walk of faith. If you'd like to help support this teaching ministry, please call 877-787-7478 to make a one-time gift or to inquire about becoming a monthly foundation partner. You can also visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click the Give button. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our message, A Church God Can Use. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.